Hey guys. All right. It's so weird to be back in this room. I gotta argue to myself. You know what? Adrian was one time requesting that there could be like a subcutaneous implant of this mic so she could mute me. I said it didn't work that way, but Elon Musk is coming up with something like that, I hear. Um, guys, if you are concerned about getting COVID or spreading COVID or if you're not vaccinated or something, it's really good to be distant here. But otherwise, if you guys would consider kind of front rowing and moving a little, we've got like kind of a smaller group here, and I'm just, I'd like to sit here and just talk to you. If that's cool. It might, it might be presumptuous, but if we just have a little chaos and move forward a little, I mean, this is like, a, we're here, this is not like the grand opening of the church here. But as I look here, I look at pristine walls in a beautifully restored floor that used to have gouges and paint, and now it like shows every little, it's been deeply oiled, and the colors and the grain are coming out. I just think of all the people gathered here to worship God and have this as a launching point of doing God's good work in this community. So I, if I sit here and say, oh, oh my goodness, baptism. Um, but I'm just so excited to be here. We will have some kind of grand reopening for the community. Uh, a couple exciting things about this place is we're looking at uh, perhaps uh, hosting uh, a Ghanaian church that might be meeting here as well as uh, maybe some AA groups, which, you know, we value hospitality so much. And our goal eventually is this place is always somehow being used to express God's unconditional welcome to people in our community. Um, just today was uh, celebrating, uh, you know, three of my dear friends right now who are pursuing a, a solidified immigration status and just thinking of how as I read the Old Testament, the prophets, just how that is something God wants us to celebrate. You know, the idea of, hero Israel, you were sojourners in a foreign land, and it's up to you to welcome people the way I care for you. And if Jesus was the ultimate expression of Israel, we're follower of Jesus, that means we get to do welcome on steroids. And uh, what a great thing. And uh, today... We're continuing the book of Daniel, and one way we're supposed to read the Bible is we have a history book open, the Bible open, a history book open, and the newspaper open. And we read those three things because we're, we need to read the scriptures with understanding of what was going on in the past, right? But we also need to know what's going on now. And there's a reason why many historic cultures in the ancient Near East and even today believe that life was an endless cycle. And one of the reasons I think that was very rational belief is it just seems like the same old crap over and over and over again. And even if you have 2,000 years or 4,000 years difference in a different culture with different values, you have the same tropes of people pursuing power, wealth, domination, and sex. You know, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The, maybe not rock and roll. Um, <laughs> But we have these tropes, and when I read Daniel, it really messes with your head, because Daniel is one of the most straightforward prophet books. Well, at least the first half. The second half is, like, really trippy, and I cannot wait to get to that. The second half of Daniel, I think God's going to use the Holy Spirit to jumpstart our imaginations. But the first half of Daniel is pretty, 
just simple. And it's almost like a hammer hit the same themes. And uh, Daniel was viewed as a handbook, how to be faithful in Babylon. Now, Babylon, uh, a lot of people know the reggae song by the, ba by the rivers of Babylon, by the waters of Babylon. By the waters of Babylon. You know that one? Boney M did it, and then Sinead O'Connor did a hymn-like cover of it. Boney M, no, that's right. Um, but I wanted to say Babylon became the metaphor for the early church to describe every empire. Because if people were followers of Jesus, they never, they were, they participated, they were citizens, and they were blessings and wherever they were at, but they never were joiners. What I mean, the people of God never wholesalely checkmarked the box of any power structure. They served within it, their redemptive presence with it, but I, the early church never would have flown a sign for any particular politician. Uh, a, the early church would never talk about the greatness or the hope for greatness of one nation. The early church would serve the nation in which they would reside. And the early church, I believe, was probably had the practice of being the most grateful for the good things about everywhere they had. I mean, the practice of gratitude is holy. You know, the practice, now pride is not so holy. Like being prideful about where you come from, prideful about where you live, is not. But gratitude is a Holy Spirit thing. And a lot of times, if we give our energy to enthusiasm for any empire or kingdom or country or nation, we're sapping our ability to be grateful. Because enthusiasm or pride in a nation takes all the energy that we can use for worship. And I would argue, like, if uh, we, as a people, we are always invited to reappropriate what is due God from other passions and give them back to God. So as we've been doing this series, Babylon USA, now if I were teaching in Norway, and I were Norwegian, the series would be Babylon Norway. Because one thing, as followers of God, uh, followers of Jesus, we're supposed to kind of have a critical eye towards our context. That doesn't mean we can't point the splinter in someone else's eye, but we're always looking for the law in our eye. Now people say, well, you know, we're not doing this as a nation, we're not doing that. I said, if I look across the globe, a forest is going to look like a splinter. But if I have a splinter on my cornea, it's going to look like a law. It's a matter of perspective. And God said, Jesus Christ said, remove the log from your own eye. And what that means to follow Jesus, as far as our engagement with our uh, politics, with our neighborhood, with anything, what that means is we become experts about where God is challenging us in our culture. Because I don't have influence over what they're doing right now in his medicine. I do not have influence here, but actually I have a significant amount of influence and a community influence of what goes on here. And I and now that's a hub. Now I have exponentially deeper influence when it comes to what I participate in along with my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I mean, yeah, we, we have political influence, but we have influence that transcends any political party or political initiative. If you don't believe that, study the abolition movement in England. I'm not talking about the abolitionist movement in America.
America was a latecomer, okay? The abolition of the slave trade was an evangelical church-centered initiative in England. And if you read about these people, these were not civic Christians. These were not people that just were Christians because they went to church. These were people who were passionate about Jesus. Uh, one of the behind-the-scenes instigators of the abolition movement who mentored uh, uh, William Wilberforce and the other names we know was a man named Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp was a theologian, probably the greatest scholar of biblical Greek of his day, and because he was so good at reading the Bible, and because he knew this was the word of God, he became the most brilliant abolitionist, I think, of his time, and maybe our time too. So because of his theological depth, because he understood the historical context of scripture, so when slave traders would rip a Bible verse out of context to justify slavery, he's like, okay guys, time to go to school. I want to teach you how to do theology here. I want to teach you how to degree. And because of that, evangelical Granville Sharp led a movement that went viral around the world. And he refused to be the official leader of it because he, was, he wanted to be the thinker and the prayer minister and the carer. He knew what it was like to live in Babylon, UK. He was in Babylon, UK, and he transcended any political group and led to something that also coupled with it involved spiritual revivals. And um, being a history nut, and praise God for Google Books, you can actually read primary documents about these guys. I've also read treatises on how good slavery is, written by Baptist preachers in America. I've had some people say, why are you so critical of evangelicals? Why are you this? I said, well, I'm not critical of evangelicals. I'm critical of the history we've had on my content. Because I believe we've not lived up to our calling in our name. Because you can't take good news out of Evangelion, which means good news. And something that's come, something that's been grieving my heart, beyond grieving my heart lately, is finding out in Canada about all these mass graves where they took indigenous First Nations peoples at these church schools, and they were meant, they would take these kids, kidnap them from their families, give them new names, and work to eradicate their culture and they were so abusive that there was a huge body count. And even now, it's like literally today, in the same way so many Americans didn't know about the Tulsa massacre, and we're just finding out it's entered into the pop culture, even though a lot of states are trying to protest teaching about the Tulsa massacre, um, Canada just is figuring out about these mass graves. And I want to say something about that. Here is Babylon, Canada. Babylon, Canada, we have this parallel. Wow, children kidnapped from their nation, torn from their families, given new names. People attend to eradicate their culture. That's why Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar by Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, Belteshazzar meant praise Baal, praise this idol. So he took this faithful Jewish man and gave him a name that praised a pagan god. And that's essentially the same vibe of what many people in the church did in Canada to First Nations people. And so when I would say, well, they were not following Jesus, I've had a friend say, well, you're making a fallacious, no true Scotsman argument. And 
what that means is every time someone does something you disagree with, you say, well, that's not Christianity, and you're just justifying yourself. But I do not think it's a fallacious thing, because literally, understanding the ethics of Jesus, it's not like trying to understand maybe the core of some other religions. Like, if you really, I mean, I've never met a loved one or a brother or sister who is from a Hindu background who can name every Hindu deity. It's very complex. Anyone that would try to summarize Hinduism that simply would be doing disrespect to their culture. But you are not disrespecting Christianity if you want to summarize the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They actually can be compressed that small. So you can get a simple discussion of what Jesus was about. Or Sermon on the Plain, chapter what, Daniel? And Luke? Or Luke chapter 6. Daniel likes the redacted version. Uh, I like it. We all like it. But you can actually simply summarize the teachings of Jesus. And then you can look at these things and say, uh, what my friend Doug Buckley says, he's got this very good theological comment. He said, that ain't Jesus. That ain't Jesus. When you hear about the, the destruction of indigenous people groups and First Nations people, that ain't Jesus. Why? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read it. It's great. So all that to say is, if I were new of these things, and I were pastoring in Canada to preach Babylon, Canada would be to preach against the church, acting just like Nebuchadnezzar. So whatever nation, we don't hate the nations we're in. We speak truth to the nations we're in. All that to say is... I've read my history book. I've been reading it. I've been studying ancient Babylon. It's been like an obsession of mine for probably about 15 years. But let me tell you, I've been also obsessed at reading the news. And it is messing my head up to read the book of Daniel and then read the news. And you, whether it, whatever it's a left-leaning network or a right-leaning network, I try to kind of cover the base, bases. I see Babylon wherever I look. I see Babylon wherever I look. I see uh, the. I, I, I see also that there's all these attempts for Babylon to appropriate Christian leaders. I see all these attempts of the spirit of Babylon trying to corrupt the people of God for power over and over. And God knows we've seen so many examples of it. I mean, in the last several years, the amount of so-called luminary Christians who have made it a tenant of their faith to uh, uh, endorse candidate A as being hope, or candidate B, candidate B as being hope. It's like, Babylon, holy crap, it's happening again, it keeps happening. So, what's it mean to live faithful in Babylon? Well, we've been talking about King Nebi, King Nebuchadnezzar. Used to be thought of as a fictional character, but then archaeologists found everything about him. Now the only thing archaeologists say is, well, there's no record of him losing his mind for seven years, so the Bible probably made that up. And I want to just offer this in response. After those seven years of insanity, King Nebuchadnezzar came back into power. Do you think he insisted that they kept good archives of his crazy days? King Nebuchadnezzar said, now make sure you carve in stone everything about my crazy manic episode that lasted seven years so everyone knows about it. Now, listen, in those days, hey, pharaohs would delete the historical records of whole dynasties that came before them. The, we take for granted that history can be egalitarianly written because the 
biblical scriptures record the failures of all their forebears. No other culture did that. That was kind of a, a Judeo-Christian invention, is recording your failure, failures. So of course Nebuchadnezzar did not record these seven crazy years. He wouldn't do it. That's just that's ignorance of that genre of history writing. So anyway, Nebuchadnezzar is gone, but we're going to start reading today. And his son, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, apparently Nebuchadnezzar had a thing for naming people after his favorite idol. And Bel, Bel or Baal and Marduk were overlapping deities. I, people have not really separated who is what, but we know that Nebuchadnezzar created a giant temple to Marduk. So, and I've talked about how many times the church resembles Marduk worshippers, not Jesus enthusiasts. So, we are going to begin today's story reading about a party where Nebuchadnezzar's son, the next generation, is in charge. And it's going to take me about five minutes. This is a long story. But I think in this, we are going to receive empowerment to resist Babylon and be the loving Jesus people this week, tangibly. Amen? Amen. All right. So story time with Jeff here. This is a long one. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken from the temple of Jerusalem, so that the king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So a little pause here. So if you've read the Torah, there were such painstaking efforts to create these cups as an artistic act of beauty in praise of the one God, the one God, the one true God. So we have this guy's partying, and he wants everyone to hear him up, there him everybody chug up with... <laughs> the instruments of worship of the one true God. Instead, he worships a miscellany of gods, while they're all getting lit with not only his wives, but also his uh, uh, side goals. Suddenly, now here's where the paranormal, crazy, miraculous, outlandish thing happens that I believe really happened. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on a plaster wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, I'm going to clothe you with purple, and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and uh, you'll be made the third highest ruler in my kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled as well. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall and said, May the king live forever. By the way, the reason she said that is you could not initiate coming into the king's hall without an invitation, even if you were a wife. Read the book of Esther for more on this. 
So she's sitting here with King Lee forever because oftentimes if someone showed up on a mouse in front of the king, they'd have him killed on the spot. Even their wife. Wasn't exactly a great culture. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, the king Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a key mind in knowledge and understanding and also had the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he'll tell you what the writing means. Now, I'm sure Daniel's kind of getting up in years at this point. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to them, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father and the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before him to read his writing and tell what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you were able to give me interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king. This is, this is kind of a mic drop right here. Don't think I can do justice when I read it, but I love it. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. That is how you talk to empire, my friends. Keep it. I mean, Daniel, I don't think Daniel was being disrespectful. He was correctly assessing the value of status in Babylon. He was correctly assessing the value of status in Babylon. If you're a winner of Babylon, if you're a Babylonian winner, you're a, a kingdom of God loser, essentially. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Here it goes. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those kings wanted to put to death. Who the king wanted to put to death and put to death? Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humbly humble. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne. He was stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until he acknowledged the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and says so in the many he wishes. Comment on that. So the guy said, come here, if you interpret this vision, I'm going to give you all, you'll be the third most powerful person in my kingdom. And Daniel explains, when he says, uh, God the Father gave Nebuchadnezzar his role, it wasn't saying Nebuchadnezzar worked out the will and the priorities and the passions of God the Father. It meant Nebuchadnezzar's very existence on this planet was contingent upon the molecules and atoms of creation being held together by the love of God. His very existence was of God, and therefore his ability to do anything he did, and ultimately 
was subject to God. Now what we know about God is he allows free will and an inner complex system of free will to operate in our uh, world. Does not mean he doesn't intervene upon occasion, but what he's saying is you're offering me third position and I'm going to speak on behalf of someone who is higher than your daddy. Basically saying, who's your dad? <laughs> but you, uh, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had goblets from his temple brought to you, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver, of gold, and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. The whole time, I'm thinking, uh, I can't imagine what all the loyalists were thinking right now. This guy just de rhetorically demolished the king, summons him. And this guy who is essentially still a slave, a high-ranking, well-reputed slave, sits here, speaks truth to power. In Babylon, we don't say, well, this leader may agree with this and this thing we agree with. And so we'll look past all these other character defects. In Babylon, we just speak truth. In a marriage, you just speak truth. My wife, I would say, is the most loyal wife I've ever known. Well, only one I've ever known. I'm only been married. But she is so loyal to me. But not a day goes by where she does not speak an uncomfortable truth to me. And does that mean she doesn't love me? Does that mean she's disloyal? No, it means that she represents Jesus in the love of God in my life. And if we are to be good kingdom citizens in our nation, that means we speak truth and we don't look past error. We speak truth to power and we show mercy to weakness. You know, the Bible says, you know, give palliative care to a, a, a poor disabled person at the temple. Don't try to fix them. But speak truth to the king and warn them. That's how we live now in an empire where we want to tell the poor and believer how to live their life and what they need to do to fix everything. But then we want to give the rulers a free pass to hate on the people that God loves. This, anyway. So here, he's going to uh, interpret what the hand said. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to the end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, or Uparsan, I preserve. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So, Daniel's basically saying, you're done. You're over. By the way, you summoned me here. You're going to give me number three in the kingdom. You're finished. You're finished. You've done what you're... You, you've carried the generational sin of your father into here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Apparently he wasn't listening. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So, Daniel uh, was given 
favor from a ruler on his way out. And the favor lasted probably about four hours by my estimate. And I'm just thinking that now Daniel did not even try to do this. Imagine all the people who in the name of God was currying favor with power, thinking they're going to get influence. And then things change, maybe during a November or something like that. And then they're all like, where's my status? Oh no, I'm being oppressed, I'm being oppressed, I'm being oppressed. And it's like, guys, the most powerful person in the world can give us status, and it can be gone tomorrow. But you know what? When you give the least of these a cup of water, you receive an eternal status that never perishes, spoils, or fades. When you, um, there are certain initiatives we have going on in church, whether it's addressing inequities in Cambodia and taking, uh, Basically taking people who have been discarded and helping them be the next leaders of their nation by being nurtured and loving and kingdom people where they can become salt and light in an area of uh, much difficulty. Or even here it's like uh, there's different things. We just had a wonderful meeting for One Good Home where many of you came out. We're just trying to figure out how do we practice God's repeated over and over and over again priority to welcome immigrants, aliens, and strangers in our midst because that is like one of God's biggest hobbies in the world. And let me tell you, those things have far more influence than number three in any kingdom because you are living subject, you are living under the very direct command of Jesus. Don't worry about number three. You are in the throne room every time you practice solitude and prayer. That is real status. So we know from, uh, first point I want to make about this is God ain't bought. Unlike other powers in other positions, people buy access. If you want to know, that's the reason why we would be great if all our politicians would release their schedules and who they meet with every time, and then all campaign donations were transparent so we can see who's paying the play. Right? Uh, that is not something new. I'm not ripping on America. That's true of every nation in the history of nations. That's just people. Pay-to-play access for power. Pay-to-play power, right? PPP. Daniel didn't play that game. And there's some, listen, we do not enter into that thing. But at the same point, Daniel was in the beck and call of leaders. In that, you're not going to buy me, but I'm going to be present to you with my God. I will be present to you, but I will not be bought. That is a razor edge, folks. Listen, the people of God for years have had this debate. Do I just sell my soul to culture or do I separate myself from culture? Do I run away and hide us for no more? You know, join my own militia group and compound or, you know, have this homeschool circle where I don't let my kids engage any secular media. By the way, I'm a huge fan of homeschooling. I'm not a hand of circling the wagons so people aren't exposed to divergent ideas. So we have people who completely separate and people who completely assimilate, neither are which how God functions. God says, we're going to be salt and light and jump into the thick of it. We're not worried about being around people who disagree with us. In fact, if you want a guaranteed way of your kids kicking their faith or your faith to the curb, is try to protect them from divergent ideas. Make it, it, the idea, like I remember with my daughter, I encourage them to hang out with people that were doing you-know-what, everything-what, but... And then we would debrief it. I said, so Kathleen, what was 
you know, you were just at this party in the university, and what, um, tell me what you see of kind of the, what are the fruits you see of casual hookup culture where people are commoditized and objectified? And, you know, Kathleen is such a deep feeler and deep connector, deep relater, that she knows the story behind the story behind the story. And because instead of uh, separating and instead of assimilating, she's present. And she's got wisdom more than I do at this point because she's embraced that from the start. And we see Daniel just don't assimilate, he don't capitulate, and he doesn't separate. But he's filled with the Spirit of God. So, God can't be bought. Let's talk about Belshazzar. What's immediately happening here is he's participating in idolatry. And I've got like five minutes here. I'm going to we'll, we'll pray for each other. Belshazzar is living off the fruits of the previous generation's injustice. And that is coupled with idolatry. Idolatry and living off the fruits of your predecessor's injustice. Whether it is your father or your grandfather or your great-grandfather or someone far remote. There is this idea in the scriptures. The scriptures teach this even though people do not want this taught. And that is the sins of our forebears are visited upon the children. The sins of the father are visited upon the son. Both the things we see, the sins that seem like benefits, and the sins that seem like demerits. Sin is multi-generational. We have this cult of individualism here where we feel unaccountable for anything. But I want to tell you something. I'm sitting here and I... Personally, and I, I'm not talking about the sins of my father or my grandfather, but I would say my father and my grandfather benefited in securing bank loans to build a business that put me and my kids through college. My father and grandfather built businesses by receiving loans that in Columbus, Ohio, you would not receive if you were black. You could not have legally received the loans my father and grandfather received to build this business if you were black. Now, are people going to say, oh, you're postmodern teaching this, whatever they're calling it, thing? I said, no, I'm just reading my Bible. Sin is multi-generational. Now, you're saying, oh, Jeff, you're just hating on yourself because you're white. No, I love myself, and I love you, and I love God. Can I tell you, I don't see this as a shaming thing. Now listen, we are, let's be post-shame and pro-conviction. Let's be anti- I am convicted. And you know what the flip side of conviction is? Empowerment. When God convicts, he empowers. And God says, if I'm going to call you to do something, I'm going to give you the power to do it. And what that means, and what that means, and what Belshazzar, Belshazzar continued idolatry and oppression and dishonoring this minority culture living amongst them by using their sacred ornaments for orgies and drunkenness. He didn't, he could have redistributed, said, Daniel, hey, these were stolen from your temple. Bad move. Here, take it back, because I heard your God did all these things for your people. Here's your temple stuff back. No, he, he lived off the fruits of the sin of his father. But we as followers of Jesus, we're not just going to say, bad Belshazzar, bad Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to say, what is the opposite of the Babylonian protocol? How do we get free from the infection of Babylon 19 here? Is we live in the opposite direction. We live according 
to what the king says. We do the Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what I'm saying is this. One thing Adrian and I have been toiling through, we've been talking through as a church, is what does it mean to be shareholders with our time, with our talents, with our relationships, and with our money? What to, where is God empowering us to be shareholders and taking that inequity that generations ago that my brothers and sisters of color couldn't get bank loans, but we did? So how is God saying, hey, Jeff, have I got a deal for you? You can invest in this thing that's going to empower people to thrive and live shalom life and have the foundation of the kingdom of God. You can take these resources you receive that were based on inequities and you can invest them and be a part of God's kingdom while you're in Babylon. This is not shame. This is not hate. This is empowerment. Something we'll be talking in our churches. What does it mean for us to not say Babylon's got to get their head on straight. What's it mean for us to live as redistributors of God's love, kindness, grace, and welcome? Amen? Amen. And let me tell you, that happens in marriage. That happens in friendship. Guess what? People that live against Babylon are better mommies and daddies. People that live against Babylon are better husbands and wives. When you see people in the name of God be jerks and be horrible spouses, it's because they've embraced the power of coercion, greed and abuse. And that ain't Jesus in the words of Doug Buckley. So I want us to stand and we are going to celebrate the ultimate rebellious act against Babylon. We're going to kick Babylon to the curb. And we do that in the Eucharist. You know, when empires flex their muscles, they bring out tanks. They show off weapons. When the kingdom flexes its muscle, when the only ancient Near Eastern religion is still practiced today while others have been forgotten. Flexes his power. It goes back to blood, shedding its own blood. When the bravado of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the parade of Jesus is sacrificed in loving enemies. And it's communion. It's the Passover. Jesus took the Passover where the story was God slayed the enemies of Israel and said, here's the way God's redemption is going to the whole world. I'm going to be slain by the enemies of God so all the enemies of God become the friends of God through my blood. So on the night Jesus was betrayed by his buddy, he took the bread. He said, this bread that we break and share with one another. See, it's broken. See, the crumbs are falling to pieces. This is my body. It's for you. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, you know this cup that we're sharing, that we're drinking over and over and over, we're passing around. You know, all the wine that's flowed during this observance, think of all my blood that's going to flow. Because I'm not shedding someone's blood. I'm having my blood shed because I will not hate my enemies. And this is our pledge of allegiance to Jesus.